Greetings. Welcome to Greta's Generation Podcast. This is your host, Kyle Herman at the University College London. In this second season two of Greatest Generation Podcast, I interview some people that are quite close to my heart. In fact, most of the interviewees are researchers at UCL. So by interviewing mainly researchers from the University College of London, what I show through this season is how many different approaches are taken with regard to research and climate change. For example, I interview the head of the Sustainable Global Resources Department. Indeed, I also interview the founder and head of the Islands Laboratory. I interview some younger researchers, which I work very closely with from both the Sustainable Resources and Circular Economy Division, as well as from Global Governance Institute, where I'm currently placed. And then I also get into some interviewees from other universities, such as the Fondazione Enrico Matte, or FIM in Milano, and the European Institute for Environment and Economics, also in Milano. I have the pleasure to interview others from different universities throughout the world. But again, it's great to be able to focus on UCL. I must thank our sponsor. This podcast is only possible because I've obtained a seed funding grant from the UCL Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences, Dean's Strategic Fund. So I'm very happy to thank my sponsor again and be able to produce this second season. On that note, if anyone's listening out there that would like to sponsor a third season, I'm on the lookout for that. And I have gotten a lot of encouraging feedback on the first season, so I'm quite happy and encouraged to take that on. So without further ado, I'll let you jump into the episodes. They are in no specific sequential order. However, as usual, you will be able to see the details on the website, www.greatestgeneration.com. That's Greta, G-R-E-T-A, as in Greta Thunberg, the teenage climate change activist, who inspired this show not only because of the brilliant work she's done for climate change policy, but because it has become quite evident to me that it's more and more likely that her generation will actually have to make much of the changes and sacrifices in order to save the climate, which is unfortunate, but the show is meant to inspire this younger generation by demonstrating an array of different career paths they may take, or to suggest that if they are indeed worried about climate change, they needn't sit along and fret and have undue anxiety. If they decide, if should the younger generation decide not to pursue a career around this, there are ample opportunities to simply engage with civic activity and protests and even just learning more about it would be helpful because there is a lot of misinformation out there. And the more we can all learn and have a truthful dialogue around these issues, the better that we can all be in terms of confronting the climate crisis.
Welcome to Greatest Generation Podcast. Today's episode, I'm really excited to introduce a colleague of mine at the Global Governance Institute at University College London, Julia Krenkamp, who has had a, quite a secretive career, now is a key researcher at GGI, working on climate change, biodiversity, governance, and complexity theory. Without further ado, I want to introduce Julia. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kyle, and thanks for having me on the show. What I'd like to just jump right into is some introductory questions. Going back before your bachelor's degree, some of the things you were thinking about with respect to the research you're doing right now, if at all, and describe some of the jobs you had before the Global Governance Institute and how you kind of arrived at the position you're at right at this moment. Sure. So in many ways, I think my career has not been very linear. Before I started my bachelor's degree, I was certainly interested in environmental issues, but I didn't necessarily see myself working in this area. I did my bachelor's degree in a related topic, though, in politics and economics at the University of Münster in Germany. And I mainly focused on politics and economics because I was interested in a career in journalism back then. But through my studies, I developed a particular interest in international politics. And I then went on studying international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So that's the first time I ended up in London. And after my studies, I spent about nine months getting work experience at the CTBTO, which is an international organization that is little known, but that focuses on promoting a global ban on nuclear weapons testing. After that, I started working at what is now the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich in Switzerland. And I focused primarily on community management and communication. So I was fostering external relationships with partner organizations all over the world. And I worked there for about three years before I returned to London, where I briefly worked for a corporate law firm before I finally returned to academia. And I joined the GGI, the Global Governance Institute at UCL, where I've been for almost five years now. So in all of these positions, really, I've done quite different things and focusing on very different topics. And that's true even for my current position at the GGI, where I work primarily on climate change and biodiversity and other environmental issues, but it's not all I do. That's great. Thank you for that concise summary. I'd actually like to just get into the GGI before we go on to the research questions. You know it better than I do. I've only been there not quite two years. And what is the real purpose? What is the research of it? What are some of the outputs? And how is it to work at GGI at UCL? The Global Governance Institute really is a cross-disciplinary platform at UCL that covers all things global governance. So that includes climate change, but also issues such as human rights, for example, or security or global health. And it is based at the political science department, but I think it is unique because we really try to engage with colleagues all over UCL. And in fact, I think UCL is unique in really fostering these relationships across departments and across faculty. And my job focuses on research on the one hand, but it is a bit of a fluid position where I also organize events, I update the website, I take care of our social media accounts, and I still engage in community management in a way. So it's really a variety of things that I do and a great variety of topics that we've covered. So I said before, I now work 
primarily on climate change, but I've also looked, for example, at the international regime for torture prevention or antimicrobial resistance. So all kinds of global issues that yeah, have allowed me to really get into very different issue areas. And that's something I really enjoy. I think I have a personality where I just really like learning about new things rather than specializing on exactly the same topic for decades. So it fits my personality quite well in that way. So you don't want to pursue like a hard sciences PhD and be in biology in a lab for 30 years. <laughs> That's not for you. <laughs> you reminded me of something about a GGI, which I forgot. We've got all these great seminars and workshops. So maybe you could just briefly introduce the ones that have dealt with climate change, and then we can direct the audience to check those out as well. Yes, we've actually had several seminars and workshops on climate change over the years. I know when I just joined, that was just after the Paris Agreement had been adopted. So we had a big workshop on that that was organized in collaboration with the French embassy. And we have some output on the website that looked at the prospects for the Paris Agreement. And more recently, we've had a workshop on climate change and biodiversity governance, which I think has been really exciting because it brought together two communities that haven't always been talking to each other over the past years. The workshops and the seminars that we organize are very much in the spirit of cross-disciplinary collaboration, but also we try not to just have academics in the room. So we try to have policy experts there as well, or representatives from the business sector. So Overall, they've always been very exciting and really, really insightful for myself. And of course, it's been fantastic to be able to choose some of the participants and invite the kind of people that you think would contribute something exciting to the discussion. So it's always very enjoyable to see the discussion play out that you've planned often for months in advance. Right. The one about biodiversity that was within the past two months, I believe, right? Yes, that was in May. So what was that one like, that webinar? I think it was a really rich discussion that brought together experts, so again, academics, but also policy experts, people that have engaged with both the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the IPBES, which is a similar institution in biodiversity, so a very diverse crowd. And this discussion is interesting because it's only really just starting that we see the deep interconnections between climate change and biodiversity. I think the discussion on climate change has long overshadowed, at least in the policy and public discussions, those on the biodiversity crisis. And I think it's partly because the discussion on climate change has for decades been relatively narrow, focused primarily on mitigation and within mitigation primarily on energy. But I think conversely, the public and policy discussion on biodiversity loss has also been quite narrow. So it's been focused on specific iconic species, the loss of iconic landscapes, and a bit less on the cascading consequences of ecosystem breakdown more broadly. But that is rapidly changing now, and it's also changing on the international level. So it's now clear that climate change is one of the biggest drivers behind biodiversity loss. And we also know how much we need biodiversity, biodiverse ecosystems to help mitigate and also adapt to climate change. And there's now an increasing focus on what's now mostly being called 
nature-based solutions. So the question, how can we work with nature to do something against climate change or adapt to climate change? And I think what most people are familiar with is probably reforestation. So tree planting, which is, of course, great, but has also very important pitfalls. So one thing that we covered in the workshop was the dangers of, first of all, over-focusing just on forests and neglecting some of the other biodiverse landscapes that are really important, carbon things, such as wetlands, for example. And also the question, how do you do it right if you do go and you plant trees? It's not always a good idea to plant trees anywhere. And you also want to do it in a way that really engages local communities. So in the worst case scenario, you could implement well-meant nature-based solutions that are actually bad for climate, bad for biodiversity and bad for people. So that was a big part of the discussion we had. How can we implement nature-based solutions that have triple benefits for people, for climate and for nature? Why is it such a catastrophic problem, the loss of biodiversity? And then what is biodiversity just in one sentence? It's kind of the variability of species, both in terms of the ecosystems they inhabit, the different species that we have, but also genetic diversity within species. So it's actually quite a complex term. And that is so important for many different reasons. Basically, biodiverse ecosystems deliver lots of benefits for humans. And that includes, for example, filtering air and water but also, of course, providing the necessary raw materials that we need to, to eat and to build houses and to pretty much do anything. And of course, also the spiritual value that lies in nature. We now know that there are immense health benefits in doing a woodland walk, being within a biodiverse environment. So these services that biodiverse ecosystems deliver are incredibly important to humans but they are often not valued. They definitely are not anywhere in measurements such as the GDP. And we're only just beginning to develop better ways of taking the value of these ecosystems into account. Yeah, so what I'd like to do now is get into the book that you wrote last year with David Cohn and Tom Pegram we'll sort of get into the GLOBE program, which the book was originally produced for, and then we can follow with sort of the EU governance system in general. So why don't you tell us about this book, which I believe you published with Cambridge University Press, if I'm not mistaken, Global Climate Governance, it's called. Yes, it's a very simple title. And it is actually meant to be a simple primer on the state of global climate governance today. So as you said, it grew out of the GLOBE project, which is this EU-funded project that both of us have been involved in and where we have focused primarily on the climate change work package. So in the book, what we try to do is, first of all, to clarify what kind of problem climate change actually is and why it is so, so difficult to solve, why it is often called a wicked problem. And part of the reason is, of course, that climate change isn't even just one problem. It's many, many different problems. Maybe on the most basic level, we have mitigation as a problem. We have adaptation as a different policy problem. 
And we also have loss and damage discussions around justice that are extremely difficult. So it's also a very, very difficult ethical problem. So we try to kind of clarify and position climate change as a problem. We then also reflect on the history of global climate change governance. So how it has developed from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement and what perhaps the future outlook is for the Paris Agreement. We also provide a very comprehensive mapping of all the actors that are relevant for global climate governance. So some of them are obvious, the UNFCCC and also the IPCC, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, UNEP, which is the UN Environment Programme. So these are all the big, obvious intergovernmental organizations. But we also focus on private actors, for example, civil society actors, more informal organizations such as the G20. So it's a whole list of actors that nowadays contribute to global climate governance in one way or another. And we're trying to place the UNFCCC regime very much in this broader framework of actors and what is often called a regime complex. So I I think what's obvious from this short description is just how diverse and big and sprawling really global climate governance has become. So what we try to do with the book is really to give a very short introduction to that. I will refer the audience to have a look at that book because for me, having been within this climate governance for a little over a decade, I actually thought it was a brilliant synopsis of all the different actors and the levels of governance and suggesting how it works, even though it doesn't always work so perfectly and also showing how it has evolved over time. So I think it's a great book to pick up if anyone's interested further. How do we define governance? The related question to that is how does that differ from politics and policy? And then how do we define climate governance without going into the book? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, global governance scholars still have long discussions on what exactly global governance is. So there isn't necessarily an authoritative definition. The main distinction is between government and governance. So government is what we typically think of if we think of a government that has been elected or not elected and that very directly rules through policies and regulations. On the global level, we just don't have an authority that can do something like that. We have norms, we have specific policies, we have rules, but sovereignty is really important to collaboration on the international level. So what we have instead is what we call governance, which is more steering than regulating. So it's trying to push all these different governments into the right direction by providing broad shared goals and rules and regulations. So in that sense, the Paris Agreement is in somehow like a quintessential global governance type of agreement because it tries to guide countries on what to do in order to meet a collective global goal? I think that's true. I mean, it's governance understood in a new way, I guess. The traditional international treaty still sought to put in place quite clear rules and top-down targets for participating state parties. The Paris Agreement is really very much about the steering, as I just said. So it's inviting states to collaborate. For listeners who are not familiar with the Paris Agreement, 
basically, in contrast to the Kyoto Protocol, it does not define emission reduction targets for particular countries, but it says all countries have to contribute, all hands have to be on deck, you have to give us what's called nationally determined contributions. So you have to draft plans for what you want to do. And we then collectively regularly look at if that's good enough or not. And we try to ratchet up ambition and slowly get towards this globally defined goal of staying below two degrees global warming and ideally 1.5 degrees. So the 1.5 degrees has become, in a sense, like really important global targets, which otherwise translated means that the global economy has to get to net zero by mid-century. Yeah, I think it's a good point since we're both working on these topics to talk about the Globe Horizon 2020 funded project. And then following that, we can speak about the, the EU's role in climate governance. So this Globe project we have, we've produced now several papers and then you've got that book. We've had a lot of workshops together. Maybe you could just introduce the audience to that and some of the outputs besides the one you just spoke about. So, yeah, as you said, GLOBE is a Horizon 2020 EU-funded project, and it brings together a consortium of 10 research institutions in, I think, eight countries, so really all over the world, to reflect on major developments in global governance, pathways towards possibly better global governance, and also how these developments are of strategic importance to the EU. And so since we lead primarily on the climate change work package, We've kind of done this introductory work package, which has been mapping the different actors and institutions. And that has resulted in the book that we've just talked about. And then another part of this work package that I've worked on has focused on multi-level governance, why we have to understand global climate governance as multi-level. And that's where we focused also a bit more on the EU climate governance system. And on that, we've worked together with colleagues in Indonesia, actually, excellent colleagues there, which has been really interesting for me because I didn't have terribly much insight into what goes on in the ASEAN space. So it's been interesting to kind of do that. The ASEAN, is that A-S-E-A-N? Yes, yeah. Do you know what it stands for? I don't. It's the Association of... Oh dear. <laughs> 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 we'll put it in the show notes because I always forget it. But yeah, it's one of these things that we speak about as researchers and we throw out there. We know what it is, but the most audience might not. And I guess we don't know exactly what it means. But anyway, yeah, it's those countries over there down in Southeast Asia. Great. Let's talk about the EU governance system and then the EU's role in climate governance. EU's role in climate governance, if I could just start it out setting the framework here. They've set these targets at 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2020 from a baseline year 1990, I believe, and 20% increase in renewable energy use and a 20% increase in energy efficiency across all of the member states. By and large, they have met those targets, which is great. Also, they have introduced the world's first multinational emissions trading system, the EU ETS which has some mixed reviews, however, has certainly had an impact. So Julia, maybe you just want to expand on that and clear up because there's a lot going on here with governance in the EU and then especially the EU's role in climate governance. Yes, of course. So the EU really has the most sophisticated supranational apparatus for 
governing climate change and, and also other environmental issues. And academics, I've actually tried to explain why the EU has chosen to be so proactive and comparatively ambitious in this area. And part of the reason certainly is that this idea of a green Europe has been useful in promoting European integration in general. So we also see in, in opinion polls, for example, that climate change is consistently seen as a policy area where most European citizens would actually quite like to see strong EU level action. Although it gets a bit more complicated when it comes to what exactly those actions should look like. But in general, we've also seen, and that is something that we've recently looked at, this, this multi-level interaction between the UNFCCC and the EU on the one hand, but also, of course, member states and also non-state actors. At several points in time, we've kind of seen positive reinforcement dynamics between these levels. So at the very beginning of the UNFCCC regime, for example, the EU itself didn't have many climate policies really internally. And it's very much the Kyoto Protocol and European identification with the UNFCCC process that has pushed for the development of the European governance system. And the EU ETS, so the emissions trading system that you've just mentioned, is something that didn't just grow out of Kyoto, but it's still quite interesting that the EU actually wasn't interested in including emissions trading in the Kyoto Protocol. So that was something the United States was keen on including emissions trading and other market-based mechanisms. And it was ironically after the US withdrew from Kyoto that the EU kind of picked it up because it needed ways of further developing its policies in this area. So we see instances of this where global level developments have very much helped to push climate policy development. It hasn't prescribed it, but it has helped policy entrepreneurs in the EU, for example, in the Commission, to say, hey, we could use this, and we could use this as an instrument for internal policy development. That said, we've also seen it the other way around. So the 2009 Copenhagen conference, which famously did not result in a new climate treaty, was kind of an additional buffer on climate ambition in the EU, which not the only one, of course, had the economic crisis and all kinds of different factors. But we do see at several points in time this interaction. If there is an ambitious climate treaty, it can allow policy entrepreneurs in the European Union to utilize that, to push for more ambition within the EU. But conversely, that obviously means that if there's stagnation on the global level, that stagnation can be used by people or by actors who are interested in the status quo. Yeah, just to tie a bow on this whole thing about the EU, what is an important but still unanswered question about EU climate governance or climate governance in general, would you say? I think the biggest kind of eternal question is simply what works? How can global climate treaties actually make a difference? And that might also involve how, you know, treaties such as the Paris Agreement that rely very much on this steering and ambition ratcheting mechanism, how can they be used by street level activists? How can they be translated into domestic context? And I think that's probably also true for the EU. Within the EU governance system, you probably have slightly more concrete questions. I think we've reached a point now where we know where we need to go. We know the kind of ambition that we need to show. And the questions now are very much on how do we make this reality and how do we pursue these goals in a manner that is also fair. So 
something that we've also worked on a little bit is the just transition, which is something that, again, in the EU context has been very important. And the European Green Deal does focus on this and has introduced new funds that are targeted at supporting communities, sectors, and regions that will struggle most with decarbonization, with making the transition to net zero. But I think there are many, many very concrete questions about how on the ground, you know, how do you really enable a transition that is just and perceived as just? I think that's a very good point and some great questions you raised there. So, yeah, the final research question, it will be hopefully quite fresh in your brain because you've published a recent paper on complexity governance. So maybe not to go into complexity governance entirely because it's quite a difficult subject, but what is complexity governance for the layman and how does that relate to climate? Yes, I'll try to answer that in a way that isn't too complex. But so in general, complexity is simply about thinking in terms of interconnected systems. So not looking at the world, including the social world, as a machine that we can take apart and analyze and fully understand and then engineer any way we want, but as a living, constantly evolving thing. And one of the main implications of complexity theory is really that we have less control than we typically think. In the climate arena, of course, first of all, the climate itself is a complex system whose behavior we cannot fully predict because small changes can have immense ripple effects. And we have seen that recently, for example. So we have seen the heat waves in North America, the floods in Germany and elsewhere, showing that weather patterns may in fact be changing much faster than scientists had expected because certain thresholds have been crossed. We constantly encounter this complexity, this ripple effect, where small changes somewhere could actually lead to very big changes that we haven't foreseen. But we also encounter complexity when it comes to governance intervention. And there's great work, for example, by Stephen Bernstein and Matthew Hoffman, who look at carbon lock-in and why we have to think about carbon lock-in in terms of multi-level and interdependent systems. So carbon lock-in basically is the idea that there are multiple dynamics, they're technological, they're economic, they're political, and they're social that reinforce the use of fossil energy. And to break this, Technological change alone isn't enough, but we also have to change the socioeconomic systems in which they are embedded. And we have to do so at different levels of intervention. So I think quite clearly, if you're an individual or a city and you really want to make a change in climate change, there is a limit to it if the energy systems, the social systems, the economic world around you doesn't change as well. So all of that kind of relates to this thinking in systemic terms. That said, thinking about governance and complexity terms is not just frustrating, but it also opens up new avenues for intervention. It's coming back a little bit to that steering point. I think governance of complex systems is more thinking about it not as an engineer, but as a gardener, someone who plants seeds, experiments, and then sees what grows out of these different experiments. I hope that didn't sound too esoteric, but it basically... (laughs) That was a great metaphor. I really appreciate that. (laughs) It basically doesn't mean that we don't need global goals, but it means that we can't control things globally. So we need broad global goals, but probably also this bottom-up experimentation 
with many things failing and where pathways towards change, systemic change, kind of evolve over time. And it's something the Paris Agreement speaks to, but of course, complexity, governance, all of this hinges on political will. So we'll go on to the final set of questions here. The first one is, I think, quite interesting from your perspective. If you were to go out and start your own research lab, it doesn't have to be today or tomorrow, but in a few years down the road, what would be something that you would think would be a key subject you might focus on? To be honest, what I would probably enjoy doing most would not be so much a research lab, but a kind of communications lab that focuses on translating the often very complex insights from research into something that is tangible and that engages the general public. And if I can go completely crazy, in my free time, I actually spent a lot of time painting. And something I would love to do would be to, to combine this passion for environmental protection and children's book illustration one day. So that would be speaking to a very young audience about these issues. I'm sorry uh, if I've yeah. <laughs> not quite answered your question about... No, that's great. It was just from. a really honest answer. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really wonderful. And, and it, it brings up such an important point that, I mean, the climate change and environment, these are such important subjects, but, and a lot of universities have great programs on this, but it's really so seldom still that the research we are doing, it connects with society and with populations in general, I find myself all the time explaining what I think are well-known climate change theories and methods and such to you know my family and to my friends and and they have no idea which is partly our fault you know they have no idea about all these things and what we can do to slowly change and, and to adapt and etc so the communicating these things into digestible information and smaller nuggets of information is really quite important thing. Mm, absolutely. I think there's also confusing information out there a lot. Myself, I often get confused if you look at some of the statistics of this sector contributes this much to global greenhouse gas emissions. Sometimes these numbers don't quite add up. That's of course because you know <laughs> yes. sectors are defined differently. You know most probably about how how different numbers the different numbers that are flying around and that are, of course, often politicized as well. And I think that is incredibly confusing for a lay audience and, frankly, for a more expert audience as well. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're working on right now. I think you read the draft paper, but we're just looking about all these measurements, the inventories of greenhouse gas emissions at the country level. And between these different databases, they're wildly different. So Researchers don't know which one to use. The policymakers, of course, don't know which one to look at. And it paints each country in a different light, depending on which, which data you use. And this is a problem. That's what we're working on the paper right now. So the last set of questions, which I ask to all of researchers, is what advice could you give to our younger listeners who might be now quite anxious to start their career, however they are very interested in climate change and the environment? Well, first of all, that's fantastic. We definitely need people to work on these issues. And I think there's, there's actually many opportunities springing up in these sectors. And 
that could be, you know, there's so many different ways you can make an impact and you can contribute to that as an academic, as an activist in businesses, of course, in the private sector, in government, it's pretty much in every sector, you know, this is going to be an important issue. I mean, I can still relate to the anxiety very much that you feel when you leave school, when you leave university and you think no one will ever employ you. It is a very stressful time. And I mean, if I could go back and give myself some tips, I would definitely tell myself to relax a little bit and be more confident and be more bold in my choices. But I think going back to my engineering versus gardening metaphor, I'm sorry, but maybe that can be actually helpful to think about your career as well. So embracing some of the right and left turns that you will do, the non-linearity of it, I think it's hard to plan and engineer a career and it might actually close off opportunities that you would have otherwise had. So going with the flow isn't always bad and it can actually open up doors that you might not have seen otherwise. Yeah, adapting and adjusting, something that we've all had to learn about over these past year to 18 months with the COVID-19 and you hopefully will find a lot more happiness and success that way. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Julia, and really much look forward to seeing you in person again. It's been a yeah. while. Hopefully it happens in September, October. And if not, hopefully it also might happen at the Conference of the Parties, the UNFCCC conference, which I believe is in Glasgow in the UK at the end of the year. Thank you so much, Kyle. Goodbye. All right. Hope to see you soon. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this latest edition of Greatest Generation Podcast. I would direct your attention if you'd like to find out more information on this episode or any other episodes to greatestgeneration.com. Last quick note, thanks to the UCL's Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences Dean's Strategic Fund, which has again sponsored this second season. Hope to see you next time.